Mark number 261, please, as this just mentioned to us and asked that we do. Indeed, what a privilege that I have to stand before an audience like this. A large number gathered today, your interest in the things of God, your interest in the matters that lead to eternal life. Many who have been sick are able to be back with us, and we're also blessed with a number of visitors, and many of our congregation also able to be with us, being back from vacations and other things. It's just a joy and a privilege to be here today. I trust that as we've sung these songs together, we've been encouraged and exhorted. As we have prayed together, we've also been called to think about things divine. And now as we give some thought to the Word of God today, might I invite you to consider something about Bible authorization. Along this line, let me at least make one additional brief announcement, if I might. As we have done for a number of weeks, there are puzzles available in the the foyer as you exit, so if you'd like to have one or more of them, just help yourself there. And Denise and I may hand them out as, uh, as you exit the building today. But anyway, be aware that we have a continuation of some puzzles, and not too many of them remain, given how close we are to chapter 24 in the book of Exodus. With those things in mind... Would you notice with me a few introductory thoughts about our lesson this morning? Bible authorization. It's an amazing thing to speak for just a moment about the blessing that's ours as Christians. If any man suffers a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. That reading of 1 Peter 4 verse 16 reminds us still about the name, for that's literally the word that occurs in the original text. The name that you and I wear as Christians is such a special name that it's a name in which we can glorify God and bring honor to Him as we properly and appropriately wear it. But it is along that line that that immediately raises the following set of questions. As you give thought to various practices that take place in the world of religion today, Practices that are taking place in our auditorium this morning, those that will take place in the building down the street or in the one in any number of other directions. You and I could pause for a moment and at least ask this. On what basis are things done in the name of religion? Is there a standard that allows one to determine without any question at all whether a given practice is wrong or whether in fact it is right and acceptable to God? Just a few questions to throw out before us. For instance, what about the matter of baptizing infants? There are untold thousands around the world today who will without question say that's a fine practice, it's a noble practice, and everyone should practice it. But also there are others who would say, well, not so. For in fact, it is not something that should be done. And immediately there is a continental divide One group that says it's fine and should be done, another that says it ought not be done at all. How do you determine whether a practice is right or not? Does the Bible tell us whether we can determine whether a practice is correct or not? Perhaps another one. What about those who might be quick to affirm that once an individual has been brought into the covenant family of God, that person can never again no matter what he or she does, forfeit the salvation that he or she has enjoyed. Now, there are others who will quickly say, yes, that's a Bible teaching. Yes, that's the way God operates and behaves. But there are others that say, not so. Now, at this point, again, how does one determine it? Perhaps one final one. 
There are those who would be more than happy to allow a female to stand before an audience and proclaim messages of the gospel, to preach if you please. There would be others, though, that would be quick to say, not so, that's not allowed by God, it is not permitted in His course of action in the gospel. Who is right? I would submit to you this is one of the most fundamental questions that any of us can ever consider. How do you know whether a given practice is right or wrong? Over the next few moments this morning, let's give our attention to some things uttered in the Bible that shed not only some light on this question itself, but also allow us to appreciate an answer to be seen immediately. To do that, we need to start with a matter of authority. Might I ask that we do that in the following way? The utter the Scriptures of God, the Holy Scriptures, are exceedingly clear in that the matter of authority is not only vital, it is utterly basic. Jesus, after His crucifixion and yet even after His resurrection, He said in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. At this point, might we quickly notice, He said, All power. And the Greek word that there appears in the text is the word authority. It is the word that on so many other occasions is translated authority. And hence the Lord was saying, All authority, both in heaven and in earth, has been given to me. It thus stands to reason that any activity, not only in the first century, but in our century as well, any activity that would be in the confines of the church and under its jurisdiction must have the authority of the Savior. Otherwise, it does not have heaven's authority at all. In fact, in our lesson text this morning that was read just a few moments ago, Brother Joy read for us from Colossians 3.17, in which Paul, writing three decades after the church was established, 30 years have now passed and still that fundamental premise held true. Again, Paul wrote in that passage, Whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. Thus, Jesus said that all authority had been given to Him, and now we see that three decades later, Paul said anything that's done, either in word or deed, must have the absolute authority of the Son of God. Again, that hasn't changed one whit, has it? And so it is, as you give some thought to a few of the additional matters on that slide, as one gives thought to this matter of authority and how it is practically expressed. Jesus answered that for us in Mark 11, verse 30. It was on that occasion that Jesus asked a question of those who were his auditors. He said, The baptism of John, whence is it? Of heaven or of men? And we have in one gigantic stroke the conclusion that there utterly are only two categories for authority. Anything that's done in religion either has heaven's authority or it is of the authority of men. There is no third option. And we at Pippin, as well as any other congregation that would be desirous of serving the Lord, should desire to have nothing of man's jurisdiction or man's authority. We should desire to have the authority of heaven in all that we do and in all that we say. It is with those thoughts in mind that it brings us to this question. If it's the case, then, that all authority is with Christ, how does one learn of that authority today? 
Does Jesus appear in dreams? Does He communicate with you in smooth, still voices? Or does He tell me something in trances and visions? How does He express that will? We yet have another vital point to note, and that is that His will is expressed thoroughly, completely, and entirely in the revealed pages of the Word of God. And thus, we must note passages like these. In 2 Peter 1 verse 3, "...all things that pertain unto life and godliness..." have been revealed. We also notice in 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 that all Scripture is given of inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. To what end? That the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished in all good works. If it is the case then that the Word of God can make the person thoroughly complete, that is thoroughly furnished, and that means all that is needed, everything that God desires for you and I to know and appreciate has been revealed here. In 1 Corinthians 4 verse 6, as Paul addressed that rather troubled congregation in Corinth, to them he in effect said, you must not go beyond what is written. Now, the church in Corinth was blessed, as you and I know, with a number of individuals who had spiritual gifts, Knowledge, faith, interpretation of tongues, speaking in tongues, and on and on the list went. And yet Paul said you must never go beyond what is written. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 6. Later in 2 John 9, the Apostle John joins this refrain. When on that occasion he noted, Whosoever transgresseth and goeth onward abideth not in the doctrine of Christ. You'll notice that that person does not have God. Isn't it clear in light of all those passages that Christ is the one who has expressed authority of heaven and He has done so in the Word of God? It's no wonder how specially we can look upon the Bible, read it with clarity and with understanding, implement it with immediacy and with haste, and to recognize that in that we have the book whose teachings can lead us to everlasting life. As you close that slide, though, I would submit that so far we have discussed a number of things, some of which have been general and some of which have been specific. We just noted then that the Word of Heaven, the authority of Heaven, is vested in the Scriptures. So that leads us to the next slide. How do you and I then interpret those Scriptures in such a way that we can see in them how God either authorizes some activities or does not authorize others? And we'll use that thought to, in fact, take us through the remainder of our lesson this morning. We understand that perhaps the simplest of the approaches are those occasions on which the Scriptures present to you and to me a direct commandment, that something either is to be done or that something is not to be done. In effect, it is as if God says, Thou shalt... Or he says, thou shalt not. And when the Bible, in fact, presents it in that way, we can appreciate what we are and must be, or we can appreciate what we must avoid. Let's use that to help us see some examples. There might well be individuals around our world who would say, God has no interest in how you treat others, specifically your enemies. But you and I know that that cannot be a correct conclusion. For we have in the words of Matthew 5.44, you must love your enemies if you are to be a person pleasing to God. Love your enemies. Pray for them. Encourage them. Aid them. 
in that way, we could see we have a direct commandment to the effect that we must love those who would act toward us in a mean, spiteful, or hateful way. And not only that, that perhaps takes us to yet another example. We also know that there is a great interest in money in our world, especially in our country, I suppose, materialism. And so when the plate is passed for the contribution, perhaps it would be tempting to give very little or maybe nothing at all. And some might be happy to say, well, God doesn't want your money. It doesn't matter to Him. He wants your heart. Friend, we know that's an absolute falsehood because of a direct commandment found in the sacred scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 16, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul gave this commandment to the church in Corinth. And considering the collection, as I have given orders to the church in Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. And with that commandment, we have answered the query, haven't we? It is a command of God that you and I give as we have been prospered, and that we do so with a characteristic of that money being used to further the cause and kingdom of the Lord. Now that part alone, perhaps, helps us to see that here are two examples. Direct commandments found in the Scriptures that have authorized certain activities. Let's look at another. There is a great question in the mind of some about the characteristic of worship and in terms of the way music should appear in it. You and I have sung praises this morning already. As we did that, the singing was beautiful, harmonious, and powerfully expressionable in relation to the thoughts of the heart. Sing with spirit and with understanding in the words of 1 Corinthians fourteen fifteen. But that brings us to this question, would it be all right to have an accompanying guitar? Would it be all right to have an accompanying drum? Would it be all right in the eyes of God if we were to have a small group of orchestra playing up here in the corner as we sang along with them? I'd submit multiplied thousands today would be quick to say, that's fine. Is it? In Ephesians 5.19, we have one of the passages to which God turns our attention. And remember that since His authority is vested in the Scriptures... We read there, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. In the sister passage to that one, in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. We have two passages. Others could equally well be noted. But in them we find mention made of music, but it is of a very special variety. Clearly, in both instances, the only thing mentioned was singing. There was not a thing mentioned about playing. There was not a thing mentioned about accompanying. There wasn't a thing mentioned about anything other than this. The instrument to be played was the heart. Notice he said, with grace in your heart. The Ephesians text directly affirm for us that the object to be played is the heart that eliminates all others. If we thus have a desire to rest only upon the authority of heaven, we must eschew any practice that would augment, implement, or put in practice anything that supplements this. We sing, and we do so joyously, 
And we do so with the fruit of our lips. Hebrews 13, 15. Maybe one final example that is a negative one. Bible authorization. We mentioned earlier about the practice or the question, is it okay in the eyes of heaven for a female to preach the lesson on a certain Sunday? Now, you and I have no interest, no desire at all to say anything or do anything that would insult in any way a female. All we have an interest in is what does God say about that. In 1 Timothy 2.12, God has said something about that. And this is what He has said. I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. And if you and I have an interest in doing Bible things in Bible ways, then we appreciate that God's reasoning for providing that had an eternal characteristic at its back, and we look forward to, in fact, adhering to that still today. Thus, when God specifies a direct commandment, He has authorized or not authorized certain things, as the case may be. There is other ways, however, that the Bible can authorize. Let's look at another instance. There's also direct examples sometimes that occur. That is to say, it may not be phrased as a direct commandment. But if we find a passage in which the first century church engaged in an activity and they did so with heaven's approval, then we can understand that that act was approved, it was authorized, and that the same would be true today, at least in proper perspective. As before, I think some examples would certainly be in order as we look at some ways that that helps us appreciate Bible authority today. The first example that I've listed is this one. You and I know that on many occasions a church may be interested in supporting a missionary who labors in a far distant place from the actual place of that church building. Maybe in a distant state, maybe in some other country. But that church will send monies or some other matters that will assist and provide for that preacher, that missionary, as he labors in a far distant place. Question. Does God approve of that activity? Is it okay for us to send money or other things to assist someone laboring to preach the gospel in a far distant place? We mustn't just assume that God finds that okay. We need to have some authorization in the sacred scriptures for it. In Acts 13, beginning in verse 1, we find an instance where that very thing happened. There was an occasion when, in which the church at Antioch was desirous of using their talents and abilities in the way the Holy Spirit had commanded. And the Holy Spirit said, Separate me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work whereunto I have called them. From that point over the next eight chapters, that church in Antioch provided a headquarter base as well as support to Paul and to Barnabas as they went onward in their way laboring to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. Another example is Philippians 4.15. On that occasion, Paul directly affirmed in writing to that church in Philippi, no other congregation supported me but you. The church in Philippi had showed their love and consideration for Paul monetarily as well as otherwise, and Paul thanked them for that. Now, Paul was, of course, an inspired person laboring in the kingdom of God, And we find in that, as well as a number of other passages, heaven's authorization, heaven's approval for those activities. 
Perhaps yet another example would be in order. As an individual becomes a Christian, is baptized for the remission of sins, and then proceeds to live, question, what happens if that person fails to live to the standards of Christianity in the sense that does things publicly, disgracefully, shamefully? At this point, what should be done with regard to that person? Should they be rebaptized? Should a monetary collection be made from them to support the church in some specific and direct way? Should elders pray over them in some fashion? Do you, do you see the point? Unless God specifies what is to be done for this wayward Christian, how would you and I ever know? That person does not need to be rebaptized because of an example that we have in Acts the 8th chapter. In Acts chapter 8, we find a sorcerer named Simon. This sorcerer was one who had deceived many people in that area of Samaria. And yet when the gospel came to that area and the truth was preached, that man responded. He did so being baptized and became a New Testament Christian. However, in that very same chapter, when the apostles came and they laid their hands on those present on that occasion, and this man saw that, he wanted that power as well. He said, here's some money. Let me be able to transfer the Holy Spirit by the laying on of my hands. Here was a Christian who had acted in a way that was very far removed from the truth. The power of the Holy Spirit could not be bought with money. He was too immature at that point to have known that apparently, but that didn't excuse him. Peter directly confronted him and said, Thou art in the bond of iniquity. Pray is what he needed to do. And thus he said to Peter, Pray to God for me that this would be forgiven. And so it is today that when a wayward child of God desires to come back to the fold, we don't need to immediately turn to rebaptism. We know that upon proper repentance... Our prayer for that individual will, in fact, lead to that person's forgiveness. And we have an inspired example to illustrate that point to us. Can't we be thankful that God has taught us matters not only in direct commandment, but also by approved example? Perhaps one final one on that slide. It might be a good question to ask about this Lord's Supper that you and I are about to partake shortly. There is great confusion to some extent in the religious world about how often that should be taken. Is once a month enough? What about once a quarter? After all, it would save the ladies a lot of effort to prepare it. If it's okay with God that we take it once a year, wouldn't that enough? But you'll notice in that question was a very good little phrase. Is it okay with God to take it once every three months or once every 12 months? What if you take it once in your lifetime? Is that enough? In Acts 20 verse 7, when Paul, on the third missionary journey, came to the city of Troas, it says that on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them until midnight. And we thus learn that the disciples were of the disposition to gather on the first day of the week. How often... Well, each week has a first day. And we notice in that text we read earlier from 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, that the word every is actually in the Greek text there. The first day of every week is that which is asserted. 
And so we have God answering the question for us. Here's an approved example where brethren partook of the Lord's Supper, not just the first Sunday every now and then, but the first day of every week. And you and I joyously do that as a recollection of that which our Savior endured at the cross. As you look at all of those matters, we've seen then that not only by direct commandment, but also by approved example. And then there's one other way that the Bible can also authorize. Let's in fact turn our attention to that one. And we'll use that latter one as well to close our lesson this morning. Direct commandment, approved example. There's also the matter of drawing a conclusion. Some refer to it as a necessary inference. I've tried to briefly define that near the top of that slide. One definition might well be this one. It in fact involves a logical conclusion that follows from a direct command or an approved example even though the Bible does not explicitly make mention of the conclusion that is in fact present. Now probably some examples will be very helpful as one considers what that is attempting to say. These examples, in fact, might go something like this. I chose these because I thought they would give us enough consideration to see not only the power of this authorization principle, but also the meaning that is to be seen in it. Today, you and I have used a songbook, but yet the word hymn book does not occur anywhere in the Bible. The word songbook does not occur anywhere in the Bible. So do we have authorization to use songbooks? There's not a single mention anywhere in the Bible about a PA system. But I'm using one. The church here uses one and many others do too. Do we have authorization for this? The Bible doesn't say anywhere about paying an electric bill for the church or having a water fountain in the church building. Do we have authorization for these things? It's a good question, isn't it? Might I invite you to consider some of those items one at a time? We are given direct commandment with regard to singing. It would be perfectly scriptural if we sang and could do so reasonably to the support of the worship of all present if we could do it without a songbook. However, I think we each can imagine that that would not only be difficult, but any visitors present would be find it nearly impossible to sing. They wouldn't know the songs. They would not have knowledge of the characteristics of the music, the particular way or tempo at which the song is sung. So you see, a song book is something that we find as a conclusion which the Bible would authorize based on the following premise. We are commanded to sing... And we're commanded to sing with spirit and with understanding, 1 Corinthians 14, 15. And we're commanded to thus sing with a degree of understanding. Anything that you and I can use to facilitate that, even if it is not directly mentioned, we could display the words of the song up here on the wall. We would have complete authorization for that. We can use a songbook. Those matters, you see, are those things that would assist and aid us as we strive to carry out a Bible command. It's also a bit interesting that in the Old Testament, the book of Psalms served as a kind of songbook for the Jews of the Old Testament era. In fact, in particular, as one gives thought to the tempo of some of those poetic writings, they themselves were, in fact, hymned as a way that gives consideration to the fact that it was done by way of singing.
not only songbooks, consider yet another. We gave mention earlier in the lesson this morning. Perhaps it's time to revisit it. This would be a very fair time to revisit the matter of infant baptism. You and I find not a single instance anywhere in the Bible of where a baby was was immersed or a baby was baptized. Now, that leads us to ask this question. If we find no direct commandment for it, and if we find no particular approved example of it, then the only hope is to find an inference that would lead us to the conclusion it must have happened. However, we find no inference. In fact, the inferences are in the opposite direction. Consider this. In Mark sixteen sixteen, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Can an infant believe? Can that two-day-old baby, that ten-day-old baby, can it believe? Well, I think we each understand the answer to that. And yet, if baptism must be preceded by belief, then that answers our query. Infant baptism is not that which is supported in the sacred scriptures. In addition to that one, look at yet another. We also introduced at the outset of the lesson, once saved, always saved. We have certainly found no direct commandment to that effect. We also are aware of no approved example to that effect. That means if that doctrine is true, it must rest on a necessary inference. However, we again have passages that teach just the opposite. So it mustn't be a truth. In 2 Peter 2, verses 20-22, Peter there affirmed that those who had escaped the pollutions of the world had again become entangled in them and overcome. Thus, there were individuals who had been saved, but then they had later become lost again. It's clear then that they had not been in a position of once saved, always saved. As you look at all of them, you'll notice it's perhaps this occasion when we can tie up a few loose ends of a lesson. We ask about water fountains and PA systems. Our PA system, we imagine to be this. If my voice were voluminous enough, and if I were able to speak with clarity, with enough volume, we could certainly make do with no PA system. The question is this, if it is true that God desires the preaching of His Word to be accompanied with understanding, and that He does desire, Habakkuk 2.2, Ephesians 3.4, if that be the case, then any aid that would aid in accomplishing that, such as our usage of projecting it on the wall, that would have an approval in the eyes of our Heavenly Father. With regard to a facility or place to meet, The New Testament says that in many instances the early church met in houses. Simply someone would open the doors of his or her house and the church would assemble and gather. We read of that in Colossians as well as Philemon. But might we notice that today if we were to meet in someone's house, that would be an approved thing. But can we meet somewhere else like in this building? Or could we meet out there in the rector center? Sure we could. We notice a number of places in the New Testament that various congregations met. The place wasn't the most important matter, was it? Any place conducive to the activities of worship, a place where the distractions could be kept to a minimum, a place in which the attention of all could be riveted on the Son of God, Matthew 14, a place in which the worship could be done decently and in order, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 33 and 40, 
as long as some place could satisfy those criteria, that would be an acceptable place for worship. It is in this regard that the Pippin congregation has chosen to have the support of this structure. And it aids us to teach the Bible, to perform acts of evangelism, to edify, and in some ways even to be benevolent. It is through the channel of the building that we're able to hopefully do some of the works that God has otherwise commanded. And so this building itself would fall as a necessary inference to the carrying out of the work of God. It is this case today as we've looked at a number of ways the Bible authorizes. Let's summarize them briefly if we might. The matter of authority in religion is absolutely critical. God has not delegated to us the position of just doing what we want, when we want, just because we think it's okay. There must be an authorization in the words of the Bible in order for us to proceed and to pursue any activities that we do in the name of religion. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That has led us to the following set of conclusions. First of all, religious authority, as it's vested in the Scriptures, appears in the form of direct commandments on some occasions. On other occasions, it is approved examples. Yet other occasions, it follows from necessary inferences. In any of these ways, we can appreciate the very authority of heaven provided to the human family in ways that allow us to act with confidence that God is with us. Today, when it comes to some of the things asserted in the Scriptures, the gospel plan of salvation is highlighted to us in a number of ways. Aspects of it are given as direct commandment. Other aspects are seen for us in the matter of approved examples. As you look at it, it involves this. You and I must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Without that belief, one cannot go further in the plan of salvation. That belief is demanded and highlighted in Romans 10, 14, as well as Mark 16, 16. Following that belief, we must then have such a confidence that we repent, that is to say, we turn in our mind from those sinful actions in which we've engaged. That repentance highlighted in Luke 13, 3 and Acts 2, 38. Following that repentance, though, we appreciate the need to confess because the Lord said so in Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Paul uttered the same requirement in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, that with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And then there's the matter of baptism, being immersed in water for the remission of sins. When that baptism takes place, as commanded in passages like Colossians 2.12, Romans 6.3 and 4, Acts 2.38, and many others, we find a person doing exactly what God has commanded not because our elders here merely have said so, not because it is some conclusion of men, but God has affirmed it. Today, have you attended to these matters in your life? Have you allowed yourself to be immersed for the remission of your sins? If you have, you know what a blessing that was and what a change in life took place. If you have not done that, though, why not today? If you know that the Bible is the Word of God and you know Jesus died for you and you know you're a sinner and you know what the plan of salvation is, you know enough to come forward today and let us baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you have become a Christian but you haven't been true to that calling, you've wandered away from the fold, 
You're like that one sheep in Luke 15 that is far removed from the 99 safe ones. Jesus went after the lone one. He's still calling for you. He's beckoning for you. He is, in fact, knocking on the door of your heart. He wants you back. You'll only stay lost if you want to stay that way. If you want to come back to Him today, just like for Simon, we'll pray for you. We'll pray with you. And God has promised to forgive you. If today we could be of assistance to you in either of these matters, won't you let it be known, if you would, while together we stand and while we sing.